This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Define American, The Majority Report, The Media Matters Minute, The Rachel Maddow Show, Brave New Films, Jim Hightower, The New York Times, The David Pakman Show, The Young Turks, and Activism from Best of the Left. And a quick note that the interesting thing about immigrants is that if you look real closely, you'll see that they are just like people. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. For all. I was born in Mexico City, Kolkata, India, Honduras, Nairobi, Kenya, Philippines, Lima, Peru, Rosario, Argentina. I work as a housekeeper, college student, math teacher, congressional intern, aspiring biochemist. I've been in the United States for over 25 years. 24 years. 13 years. This is the place where I became who I am. This is the place I grew up in. I understand the meaning of giving, of making a change. Pledging allegiance to a flag that has not yet recognized me means living in fear. Shows me how much work there is left to do. When I see the American flag, the first word that comes to mind is pride. Dreams. Health. Heart. Patriotism. Unity. Liberty and freedom and many opportunities. Yeah. <laughs> Pledging allegiance means I am a part of America. It's a small yet meaningful way to show that I am an American. I may not have been born in America, but America was born in me. What is this land? America, so many travel there. I'm going now and I'm still young, my darling, meet me there. Wish me luck, my lovely house, and free you when I can. And we'll make our home in the American land. Over there, the women wear silk and satin to their knees. And children, dear, the sweets I hear are growing on the trees. Gold comes rushing out the river straight into your hands. If you make your home in the American land. Folks, as uh, immigration continues to stall in the House, we all know why, don't we? Immigration is stalling. We all know why immigration is getting such a big push. It's because it's not Republican conservative types that are crossing the border. I'm kidding. No, I'm not, actually. You know who really said this? Why, yes. Outgoing Congresswoman Michelle Bachman trying to burgeon her bona fides with the uh, nativists in her base so that she will have a way of generating income to support her defense. Um, They'll send her care packages while she's in prison. Or or she'll go around do speaking tours uh, to bolster her defense fund. Uh, here it is. She's talking to Breitbart editor Ben Shapiro. Or is it Shapiro? Of... Uh, uh, on, I guess, I don't know what it is, some radio. Representative Michelle Bachman, and, and in talking about kind of the impacts on the labor force, there was a report out today that some of the senior-level House Republicans, including perhaps John Boehner, are, are confident that they are going to push ahead with some sort of immigration reform plan, perhaps a version of the Senate plan. Michelle, what are you hearing on Capitol Hill about the chances that Republicans push forward with some sort of immigration reform plan before the 2014 elections, and is it a good idea or not? 
It's a terrible idea to go forward because we have, again, about 7 million Americans that are looking for employment right now. So our problem is not um, lack of workers to do jobs. Uh, we have a lot of people who would love to work. There just aren't jobs. So for us to... Now, there's two things that occur to me when I hear this. Actually, three things. Probably four or five. But let's just do the, the top. One is... As far as those 7 million workers who are looking for jobs and can't find them, you know what might be helpful for those people? Extended unemployment benefits, which uh, Michelle Bachman is not in favor of. But also, what is she proposing here? Those undocumented immigrants, to the extent that they're taking jobs away from Americans, which is certainly a controversial statement, but to the extent that they are... Where are they going to go? I mean, the idea is that, that according to her, that we're going to we're going to round them all up and and deport them. No, they're not going anywhere. So their presence in this country, to the extent that they do compete with jobs for Americans uh, citizens, is only to de to depress wages for those who do have jobs, and by providing them legal status. That would actually create an increase in a, in a push to increase the quality of those jobs and raise the wages. But that's not really what she cares about. This is what she really cares about. We have to open up our borders effectively and have open borders because that's what all of this legislation would do. will change the dynamic of the United States forever. Let's face it, if these were conservative Republicans that were um, coming illegally into the United States, the last thing President Obama would do is seek to give amnesty and citizenship and legal voting status to the people who are coming into the country. And take a look at the most recent statistics. If you look at Hispanics today, 77% respond that they believe in big government and they like big government. 55% of Asians that are coming into the country are saying to us they believe in big government, they like big government. And after three generations of living in the United States, Hispanics say that they still want bigger government. So it isn't... The, the conservative Republican immigration policy that immigrants don't like. It's our stance on fiscal conservatism, the Constitution, patriotism. There you have it. If only these uh, people coming in were white conservative. <laughs> uh, they say they like big government. So this is her pushback as to why it's not going to politically help Republicans to pass this. It's because they hate us anyways for our policies. Uh, Michelle Bachman, you will be missed. She's the master. And not, I, no and one not does forgotten. it better. I love I love because in each of her comments on something like that, she always projects and does and then does exactly what she's claiming Obama's doing. I love it. So it's like, he's doing this for political reasons, which is why we'll absolutely oppose this for political reasons. Exactly.
This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Coleman Lance. New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio announced a plan to offer IDs to all residents, regardless of their immigration status. On Fox's The Real Story, host Gretchen Carlson falsely suggested that the plan is intended to permit undocumented immigrants to vote. She asked guest Emily Tish Sussman. So, Emily, am I to assume that the reason that de Blasio would want this is so that people can move on to vote? I mean, I don't really understand what, what, what do you think his whole effort is in this? Well, we do really see that having these either ID cards or driver's license for the undocumented does actually promote public safety. You know, those who are involved in car in fatal car crashes, one in five have not gone through the proper training of a driver's license. It would bring them into that kind of system. It would have more economic security for those. It would have better trust with the police. Like, it really does okay. bring them in in a number of ways. Carlson's concern about undocumented immigrants voting is baseless. Since to register to vote in New York City, you must already be a U.S. citizen. That debt ceiling bill passed tonight, 221 to 201. 28 Republicans crossed the aisle to vote for it. 199 Republicans voted against it. But the bottom line is it passed. We will not self-inflict that particular economic wound again just because conservatives demanded that Republicans do so. And so, naturally, conservatives are livid tonight. They are really mad at John Boehner. A group called the Senate Conservatives Fund is urging people to call House Republicans to demand that John Boehner lose the speakership because he allowed this vote to raise the debt ceiling. They, of course, are the Senate Conservatives Fund, which makes this call a little awkward, but apparently they're all over the House now as well. Uh, the Club for Growth also warned they would score the vote in order to punish anyone who voted for it tonight. An advisor to the group today told reporters, quote, when we heard that House leadership was scheduling a clean debt ceiling increase, we thought it was a joke. But it's not. Something's very wrong with House leadership or with the Republican Party. Heritage Action, the group widely credited with forcing the Republicans to shut down the government last fall, they too warned that they would score the vote today, that they would punish anyone who went along with John Boehner on this today. But you know what? The Republican leadership jumped anyway. John Boehner brought this bill to the floor and passed it with overwhelming Democratic votes and just a few Republicans, and he did not seem to care much at all about these guys screaming at him from the right and threatening his job and all the rest of it. And that's not the first time just this year that this has happened. Earlier this month, all these same conservative groups issued dire warnings and threats to Republicans that they better not support the farm bill. But the farm bill also passed the House. And then it passed the Senate and became law, and nobody much seemed to care about those scary warnings from the Senate Conservatives Fund and all these other groups about how terrible it would be, especially for the Republicans who went along with it. It was the same deal on the spending bills earlier this year. The, the right said, don't do it, you'll be sorry. And John Boehner did it anyway, and the legislation passed, mostly with Democratic votes, but with enough Republicans to make it happen. This keeps happening. So, question. If Republicans don't really care what these right-wing groups have to say on the debt ceiling and the farm bill and the spending bills, why can't Republicans not care what those groups have to say on immigration? Because Republicans are defying the right on all of these other matters of legislation, but they're not defying the right on immigration. Not at all. I mean, look what's happened on immigration. First, the Republicans said they couldn't possibly support immigration reform because President Obama wasn't being tough enough on the border. Well, the administration then forced a record number of deportations at the border and a record increase in border security. So Republicans decided, okay, then that wasn't their issue. 
they didn't want immigration for a different reason. House Republicans then said they couldn't possibly consider a comprehensive immigration plan. It had to be piecemeal, had to be a bunch of individual bills instead of one big bill. And so the president said, okay, sure, if that's what you're willing to consider, I can work with that. I don't care what the bill looks like. Let's just pass something. We can do it in a million little pieces. So then, of course, House Republicans decided actually that wasn't their issue. They didn't want to do it for a whole different reason. Their latest reason was this. House Speaker John Boehner dampened prospects for immigration reform this year, blaming a lack of trust between the White House and the Republicans. We won't pass this because we don't trust the president. To which Democrats responded, okay, you don't trust the president? No problem, we can work around that. We'll pass an immigration law that doesn't go into effect until President Obama isn't president anymore. It'll go into effect after he leaves office. Then you don't have to worry about the fact that you don't trust him. Is that good enough? No, no, of course not. Republicans said, oh, that's not our issue anymore. Immigration still can't happen because actually we don't know who the next president's going to be either. <laughs> Republican Congressman Jim Jordan said, quote, we don't know who's going to be president in 2017. So you need to guarantee that they get their chosen president in 2017 or there can't be immigration? We might not like the next president either. We can't pass immigration with tons of deportations and border security. We can't pass immigration piecemeal. We can't pass it after Barack Obama is no longer president. I mean, on every other issue now, the Republicans are wailing about it, but in the end, they're shooting down the conservatives who are telling them to say no to everything. They're defying those conservatives on all these other issues. Why not on this issue? Why are the conservatives winning and the Republicans still saying no on this one issue? One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. The modern anti-immigrant movement can be traced back to a single source. John Tanton, a white supremacist who believes in eugenics and population control. I've come to the point of view that for European-American society and culture to persist requires a European-American majority, and a clear one at that. Tanton helped create three powerful nativist groups that are still around today shaping the immigration reform debate. FAIR, the action arm, is a well-known hate group. The Center for Immigration Studies, their think tank, their director, Mark Kikorian, has said things like, My guess is that Haiti's so screwed up because it wasn't colonized long enough and Numbers USA, their grassroots organizer, which works to bring Tanton's ideas to a larger audience through fear tactics about job security and overpopulation. I mean, do our leaders really believe that black Americans don't want to work? Let's slow down mass immigration and save jobs for Americans. Together, these groups are part of a sprawling network of anti-immigrant organizations that have stalled progress towards immigration reform. And they have very close connections with key legislators and lawmakers, like Chris Kobach, Mitt Romney's immigration advisor and the author of anti-immigrant laws like Arizona's SB 1070. 
Illegal means illegal. Tom Tancredo, who believes that immigrants are here to kill us. Now on U.S. soil, pushing drugs, raping kids, destroying lives. And Senator Jeff Sessions, who has such deep ties to the Tanton Network, he has Center for Immigration Studies staffers whispering in his ear. The Tanton Network creates front groups to sow divisions between Americans and manipulate communities who have historically supported civil rights and immigrant rights. Their latest front group is BALA. The Black American Leadership Alliance, or BALA, is a front group for Mr. Tanton's network. Uh, they promote the misleading notion that immigrants are taking jobs from African Americans. Today we have the same forces of white supremacy that, uh, that Bala supports that are not only attacking immigrant rights, but are attempting to roll back the gains of the civil rights movement. Voting rights, for example, affirmative action. They are not only attacking immigrants, they are attacking the rights of African Americans. This week, Bala is working with Tea Party allies to hold a series of rallies protesting against immigration reform. I'm here to talk to you about your breeding. You cannot breed secretariat to a donkey and expect to win the Kentucky Derby. Bala's message of hate against immigrant communities has very little traction in African-American communities. If you look at the polls, uh, you will see that African-Americans overwhelmingly support a path to citizenship for immigrants who are undocumented. Do Bala supporters know that they are working with a group that fights for a white majority that supports eugenics, sterilization, and population control? And why are congressional Republicans listening to them? I'm an immigration attorney, actually, and I wanted to talk about uh, dog whistles in the immigration debate. I know you're just talking about that a little bit. Um, well, as an immigration attorney, you know Stephen, hold on for one second. As an immigration attorney, did I say anything? Did I, did I say anything that was incorrect in terms of the law is concerned? No, I think that you were uh, you were right on. I mean, there are people who re-enter after having been deported, and they can be charged criminally in federal court for illegal re-entry. But most people who are here undocumented, they, they go through a removal proceeding, which is an administrative court. And actually, one of the weird things about our system is that there's a huge group of people who can actually get papers by being in removal proceedings. And so the current immigration system actually encourages undocumented immigrants to stay in the United States. And it encourages certain people to cross their fingers and hope that they get caught, which is kind of weird. Um, wow. But anyways, uh, I wanted to, to talk about how you know that it's the underlying reasons uh, for opposing immigration reform are all racial. And I, I think the biggest reason is, you know, the people who are here undocumented embody uh, better than anyone else the Republican ideals. They're self-reliant. They don't get public benefits, they don't qualify for them, they pay into Social Security but will never uh, receive those benefits. They take the hardest jobs, the lowest paying jobs, and they do them, and they do them well. Um, yet you'll never hear them being praised for those things. Uh, you know, these are people who 
the, the Republicans who criticize uh, these hardworking immigrants, they've got kids who never have to get summer jobs. Uh, they pay for their, their kids' education. So, you know, their own families don't reflect these values that supposedly they hold true. Um, and so you know that there's underlying things. And it's the same thing if you go back to the, the civil rights era or before. I mean, people didn't just say, I, I dislike African Americans. They had all these sort of phony reasons right. uh, for opposing civil rights. And the same thing is true today. I mean, if, if I go out in my community, I don't hear people saying, I hate Mexicans. They say things like, well, illegal is illegal. And... Uh, I believe in the rule of law or whatever these sort of phony reasons um, for opposing immigration reform. And it's, yeah, it's really crazy because where I'm from, the undocumented immigrants are doing the hardest work. I mean, I live in the middle of apple country, and they're out there right now in 10-degree weather pruning trees and, and doing all this type of work, and we depend on them. It is, I mean, it is sort of just like, you know, to break down the notion of like, we can't possibly give um, uh, these 10 million people uh, an, an opportunity to become citizens because then we would be rewarding, I guess, their, um, uh, their cutting in front of line, you know, like rewarding what exactly? The fact that they've had to live these sort of like, uh, existence in the shadows, getting no rights, um, uh, getting right. exploited, their labor. Why wouldn't we reward that? I mean, it's just yeah, absurd. They pay, the <laughs> they pay the price every day, you know. And the, the, the other thing, talking about the, the food stamp issue, the people I see, you know, I think that conservative, uh, conservatives like these little anecdotal warm blanket stories about I knew a guy who... Uh, you know, committed fraud and he got food stamps when he didn't need them. And yeah, those stories exist. But the, the great majority of the people I work with who are getting food stamps are getting them for their children who have lawful status. And the parents, you, you have uh, households where both parents work year round and they're making less than, uh, you know, $40,000 a year. And they're working the hardest type of work. And this idea that, well, uh, you know, the whole freeloader thing, again, it goes, there's underlying reasons there, uh, why they support these kind of blame the poor policies. And a lot of times it does come down to, uh, good old fashioned racism, I think. Yep. At last, both Republicans and Democrats are beginning to respond aggressively to economic needs. It has been a tough time, admits one Washington insider, applauding a new spending proposal that could help out. Unfortunately, he and Congress aren't referring to your tough times. No, no, they are rushing to the aid of the multi-billion dollar military-industrial complex. The government, you see, has not been getting our nation into enough wars to satisfy the insatiable appetite of Northrop Grumman and other war profiteers for government money. But now they've spied a new place they can militarize with their high-tech, high-cost weaponry. 
the U.S.-Mexican border. In recent months, these corporate predators deployed an army of lobbyists to Congress, targeting the immigration issue. Border security is their battle cry. They've already stuffed the Senate's immigration bill with $46 billion for more militarization of the 2,000-mile border, literally turning it into a corporate honeypot. More drones, more electronic gadgetry, more agents needing more weapons, more war toys. Various corporate lobbyists put their specific wish list directly in the Senate bill, mandating brand-name purchases. For example, the bill requires the Border Patrol to buy six airborne radar systems from Northrop at $9.3 million each and 15 Black Hawk helicopters from Sikorsky at $17 million apiece. This is Jim Hightower saying, What we have here is the emergence of a full-fledged monster, a border industrial complex pushing a permanent, ever-expanding border war. How long before they use the cry of terrorism to militarize the Canadian border, too? And after that, my guess is they'll want to seal off those pesky anti-war radicals in places like Vermont. Ultimately, they can fence all of us in. Or is it out? The Senate bill, as currently written and is hidden the floor, would put in place the toughest border enforcement plan that America has ever seen. The Missing Migrant Project seeks to organize all um, missing persons reports relevant to the U.S.-Mexico border. Every time we hear uh, the type of language being used to discuss the border, this, this amping up of border patrol presence and surveillance and technology and equipment and militarization, all we see is a border where uh, we see more death, more skeletons, more separated families, more families looking for someone in the desert. So the current debate on comprehensive immigration reform in some ways mimics the conversation that happened in the 1990s. Border patrol presence, like in the Tucson sector, um, quintupled, effectively sealing off the border. And what was left open were the wide expanses of desert. Once people got to the border and they saw the re these remote areas that were their only option to cross through, they would see how risky it would be and they would be deterred. Twelve years later, we've seen that they were not deterred, and they went through the desert areas in very high numbers, and they died in very high numbers. The on-the-ground changes happened around 1999 to 2001, and 2001 was really where this office noticed that we were now in a crisis, that we were getting hundreds of remains for people who had died mostly of exposure in very remote areas of the desert borderlands. Got some great tattoos. Yeah, I pressed the enough over there. Oh wow. What is it? Juana Flor. Floro. Juana. Mm. Can't make out that first word, can you? Is that it? Yeah. yeah. What is that? Like smile now, cry later. Oh. You might want to Yoro. Uh, oh. Yoro, cry. Oh, okay. 
Are these deaths really acceptable to us? Um, just because they're so-called illegals, are we really willing to accept hundreds of deaths along the border each year? That one act of transgressing a border can't be the only way that we define these people. So we try to look for clues from the skeleton as to who this person might be. And we make some pronouncements on the various bones of interest and come up with what we call a biological profile. Was it a man or a woman? About how old they were? About how tall were they? Can we tell their ancestry? Uh, from their teeth, do they have any fillings? Do they have any missing teeth? Do they have any cavities? Uh, ornamentation type of uh, uh, dental restoration that, that the family might notice? Well, hopefully there's a missing persons report that we can compare that post-mortem profile to. If it is, then Robin can get in touch with the family and see if there's any dental records or medical records. We can then uh, try to see if the family will contribute a saliva sample or a blood sample and then try to do a DNA comparison between that family reference sample and the DNA that's hopefully profiled from the bones of the uh, dead person. If there's not, then the person just remains unidentified and is one of 800 other unidentified cases going back to about the year 2000. The items are, are a very intimate look into someone's life. First of all, of course, it's not the things that someone would want to define them after death. I think they're really representative of personhood in a way that the bodies and the bones aren't necessarily. They can also be the single most compelling item for families to believe that this unrecognizable thing is their missing person. What we say when, we, when we're talking about border security and the way that it's being discussed now comes with a certain acceptable collateral damage. Since when have you heard anybody in Washington, D.C. talking about the, the bodies on the border? It's not even on the radar. There's this sense that because they broke the law initially that they somehow deserved it. What I could do probably would be best is to get a limited list and then um, send you via email a list of those numbers and then you can look at the photographs. We have an online system um, now that that all of the missing persons um, are in. Um, so instead of having to search by hand and look at all of the, basically all of the remains that have been found since he went missing, now I can see automatically what, what the possibilities are. The dead and the missing and their families are teaching us about what human rights means in a globalized economy. There will always be new families, new immigrants trying to come across, and there still hasn't been attention paid to how does the first-time migrant wishing to come across the border for work, how does someone like that not have to cross through the desert? He's a small male, small young male, probably was late teens to maybe mid-twenties in age. It seems to me as an American that we need to fill a certain niche of jobs here. And apparently Americans don't want to do them or don't want to do them for the current wages. But the country south of us and the country south of that country in Central America, those people will do those jobs, uh, jobs that are the backbone of our society.
his his uh, right upper canine isn't as fully erupted as the other teeth, so it could correspond to that. The number of people that are now crossing illicitly across our border, some number of those are dying. I gotta believe that the vast majority of those people, had they had a chance to pay whatever fee they paid the smuggling operation that got them over here, they would gladly pay that fee to the U.S. government to get some kind of legitimate work visa. I think that's immigration reform. That would drastically cut down the number of deaths. This is the Media Matters Minute. I'm Albert Klein. Many conservatives lashed out at Coca-Cola for their Super Bowl advertisement featuring a multilingual rendition of America the Beautiful. On The Five, Fox host Eric Bowling complained. For whatever you gain in, in this diversity thing that you're going for, Coke, you blew it with a lot of people who are, who are very, very patriotic about that song. About that song. But anchorwoman Brenda Wood of WXIA in Atlanta demolished these myths in her segment, Brenda's Last Word. But the fact that people are outraged over this ad is outrageous itself. People indignant that others would have the audacity to sing America the Beautiful in a language other than English when America was built on opening its arms to the world? The quote on the Statue of Liberty doesn't say, give me your English-speaking only Christian-believing heterosexual masses. It says, give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. Jeb Bush is a popular guy among Republicans, kind of. And he is also uh, having his name thrown around as a possible Republican candidate for president in 2016. There is, of course, a problem, which is that at a prominent conference of education innovators, he showed up and he said that he favors a bigger guest worker program. And he also favors a path to amnesty for all of the currently illegal immigrants in the United States. He spoke at what's known as Davos in the Desert. It's an event in Scottsdale, Arizona, and he said the U.S. needs a robust guest worker program and also an expansion of H-1B visas for the high-tech industry. And here's the most controversial part. He called for a tough but fair path to legalized status for all of the country's illegal immigrants. He also said the following not that long ago about illegal immigration. Family, yes, they broke the law, but... It's not a felony. It's kind of the it's it's a it's a it's a it's an act of love. It's an act of commitment to your family. This is not going to sit well with the Republican base. Some of the some of the Republican base straight up thinks that Hispanic immigration is uh, a, a, an immigration of people who are somehow less human than they are. Right. That's one portion. It's not the biggest portion. Another bigger part of the Republican base thinks that anything even remotely resembling a path to citizenship is uh, liberal nonsense and absolutely will not stand for it. And then a lot of Republicans just don't believe what Jeb Bush is saying, which, by the way, is indistinguishable from what we say about class mobility, Lewis, which is that if you're born poor in this country, you are very likely to stay poor. 
and that that uh, makes the American dream literally just a dream for most people. Republicans are not going to like this. No, of course not. There's even uh, probably the biggest portion of Republicans that believes that uh, immigration is the reason that the middle class uh, is taking such a hit. And uh, that, of course, isn't true. But I can only imagine that that this is either a, a truly held sincere belief of Jeb Bush or he's looking for the Hispanic and independent votes on this one. Right. Well, he could. his wife is Hispanic. He clearly understands the demographic shift. So we could say it's political strategy or strategery, as the Bush family tends to prefer. Uh, but at the same time, it could just be that he really believes this stuff, which he should. He is, uh, I think, the most logical and, and uh, independent of the Bushes. And what he's saying is just accurate, right? So, so that ab absolutely makes sense. Some comments from the Breitbart article that covered this. Keep digging, Jeb. That sucking sound you hear is your base running away. That comment had 1,300 likes on Breitbart. Mr. Bush believes U.S. citizens are incapable of performing high-tech jobs and are too lazy for manual labor. I disagree. Of course, he didn't say that. And why would you want it to be just peachy to keep letting illegal aliens get more and more comfortable here while everyone else has to do things according to laws and rules? So we see what the reaction is there um, uh, to, uh, to Jeb Bush's statements. I think this is good because I personally don't want another Bush to be president in spite of the fact that he would probably be the best of the three if he were to become number three. One of the biggest grievances that liberals have had with uh, the Obama administration for the past few years is that they've actually done more deportations than the Bush administration. Not necessarily more than the entire eight years of the Bush administration, but they're very soon going to pass that number. But we're going to go a little bit deeper, find out a bit more about the different types of deportations they do so we can speak about the issue in a more, I guess, uh, more intelligent fashion in the future. So there are actually two different types of deportations that they do. There are removals, which are orders issued by a judge, and returns that are also serious, but they're less strict and allow a person to apply to legally return much faster. The removals make it harder to get a visa in the future and higher penalties if you're found to return in the future. So let's look at those removals, the more strict kind first. We've got a chart here going back to 1982 showing how many there were. And you see an upward trend. It did not begin under Barack Obama, but it has maintained and gone up slightly since then. But it's been going up since basically the 90s. Uh, it's becoming more and more. And in fact, if you look uh, at the removals versus the returns, you'll see something pretty interesting. The returns, the less strict ones, have been dropping and are now more rare than the removals. This happened just recently, in fact, under Barack Obama. And uh, so just to get a bit, this isn't necessarily going to make you feel much better about what Barack Obama has done, but 59% of the removals they've conducted in the past few years have involved people who've been previously convicted of crimes. Now, we don't know what percentage of those, the crime, was that they had previously been in the United States illegally. 
Uh, 84% of the others, the non-criminal uh, deportations, the removals, have occurred within 100 miles of the border. So for the most part, we're not talking about people being plucked out of their homes in you know, New Hampshire or Montana or something like that. It's usually very close to the border. Uh, take that for what it's worth and judge Obama accordingly, I guess. I would say Does this make you feel any better? He says no. that he is going to rethink his deportation policy. Which I think is a good thing, you know? The, mm -hmm. the, the discussions about trying not to split up families, I think, is uh, an important aspect of this. The increased focus on making sure that what gets, that, that they're focusing on criminals rather than uh, kids who are who are brought yeah. here as children, the dreamers. Um, you know, that, that kind of idea, I think, makes sense. That makes sense to have our money spent on, if we're going to be doing this kind of enforcement, that that's what we focus on instead. And, yeah. and these, the, the, the numbers, that curve that you showed, John, going straight up since, uh, I guess, a little bit into the Bush, the second Bush administration, that all started with the development of the Department of Homeland Security. So you mm. see, yeah. I mean, if you look at it right there, I mean, it just, it starts going way up yeah. uh, from that moment forward. So I mean, there was this edict put out when you when you make a behemoth uh, bureaucracy, when you create it, they're going to do something and they're going to put rules in, in, in place. Administrations are going to follow those rules and change them accordingly. So yeah, it's great they're having the conversation. It'd be great if they did something about it. It would also be great if we, it, you know, it, it's not that we're just seeing these things happen in Mexico. We're seeing them happen, uh, you know, with, with Mexican immigrants and South American immigrants. It's happening with people from other countries now, too. Mm -hmm. To see that breakdown demographically would be interesting, too. Yeah. Yeah, like, unfortunately, I, we don't have that. But that um, I, I'm not a big Obama defender in general, but I don't know how much we can make out of that just by looking at what the presidents were doing at the time, just by putting the president's name there and yeah. showing the ref, because we do have something called Congress. I think we have. Is Congress yeah. still a thing? They're still yeah. there. They're, they're still there. They're I don't know what they're doing most of the time. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what they're doing most of the time. It's a frat, remember? But, yeah. you know, there's a reason that we haven't been able to get comprehensive immigration passed, and it has a lot to do with Congress. So just looking at what president mm. was where during, you know, at what time, I don't know that we can really gain that much from That's that. That's fair. Yeah, very fair. Yeah, although, I mean, we, we don't have time to run the video, unfortunately, but Jeb Bush recently saying that immigration is not a crime, it's an act of love. I mean, he's just one major Republican, but perhaps in the future more he's will just... only one, but it's major. It's, it's, yeah, it's, exactly. It's a, that was a major statement mm -hmm. politically because why I brought it, it up. means that he, among so many, uh, get it. Whether or not yeah. you like Jeb Bush is another story. He gets it on immigration, and if he runs for office, that's going to mean something. Well, he either gets it or he wants to run for office. Well, no, but that's maybe, what I'm saying. But the same no, thing, right? But it may be the same thing. Getting it. Yeah, I mean, he gets that he needs, needs to say to. that to yeah. run for office. I don't think that he cares as much about immigration as I do. Oh, I don't think uh, he cares at all. Well, I don't know that he doesn't care at all because I sort of, you know, I think a Floridian governor sees things a little differently yeah. um, uh, because of the, uh, the the way that they have dealt with immigration in that state because they've had it in very many different flavors in the rest of the country. But anyway, skipping that, he gets it from a political standpoint, which yeah. is unusual. So it, when when somebody gets it from a political standpoint, things follow. When the president says that he's in favor of gay marriage things follow yeah. that, whether it has anything to do with legislation. So, yeah. so you know. this might be a break in the uh, the wall of hegemony for the well, Republican it, Party, it, that if, we're all against this all the time, forever, no matter what happens. A, a, a clean break, no. But I think that, the, that there's some breathing room, finally, if, in fact, he's, he remains on the, on the scene. And it seems like he's pointed that way, at least for the moment. And it may hurt him, you know. It may hurt him getting out 
of that party. Interesting to see how it evolves. Out of that primary, yeah. Yeah, and, and hopefully Barack Obama will evolve on this issue as, as he has with others. But bear in mind, you saw the numbers of removals versus returns. And removals, there's a lot of reasons why they're bad or why they're much harsher. But one of them is that thanks to a 1996 federal law, if you come in again and you'd been previously removed instead of returned, an immigration official can reinstate another removal without any judicial review whatsoever. So obviously this makes it much harder to get back in. Uh, and although we said that you know a lot of this isn't like it's removing criminals and people that have recently crossed over, but between uh, the middle of 2010 and the middle uh, of October uh, of 2012, uh, people with U.S. born children were deported more than 200,000 times. And in every one of those 200,000 cases, that was an absolutely devastating thing for those children, for their family, and all the more reason why Obama and Republicans, perhaps even Jeb Bush, should rethink this horrible policy. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stop deportations now. And this may be the easiest ask we've made yet at Best of the Left. Just store the number 235246 in a text message field so you're ready to hit send to support the campaign as it's basically a no-brainer. President Obama has repeatedly said that the best way to solve our country's broken immigration system is through congressional action that would provide a pathway to legalization for most of the undocumented workers inside our borders. In the meantime, his administration has been dubbed deporter-in-chief by immigration advocacy groups and activists. Hunger strikers are protesting outside the White House in an attempt to put a human face on the families being torn apart by Homeland Security. A federation of unions who typically stand with the president on policy initiatives took action this week to stand and instead with those putting themselves on the line to save their families. The group projected a 60 by 90 foot video on the AFL-CIO building, which faces 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, to tell the statistics and human stories behind the deportations. Quote, we feel like the political debate about immigration has gotten old and tired, while the human dimension of the deportation crisis has unfortunately lost center stage, said Jeff Hauser, a spokesman for the Union Federation. Messages like, every 78 seconds a father, mother, brother, or sister is deported, and 150,000 children who are U.S. citizens are missing at least one deported parent, alternated with the phrase, stop deportations now. The goal is to prompt intransigent Republicans who use talking points like step-by-step reform, which actually just means slow the reform process to a halt until we're safely out of office, 
into taking action to heal unnecessarily separated families. The parallel goal is to remind the president that he has the power to stop jailing people for the civil infraction of existing in this country without the proper paperwork. Text the word NOW to that number, 235246, to back the Union Federation's campaign and use the hashtag NotOneMore with the numeral one to tweet at your representatives respectfully, if you would. You can find your reps' handles along with the rest of their information at contactingthecongress.org. And you can also join with the AFL-CIO in sending solidarity to the hunger strikers at the White House. Text the word HUNGER to that same number, 235246, and add your own words to the message like this one. Your work is so important. Thanks for putting your personal welfare on the line. I wish Congress would do the same. Solidarity. out from in front of the television bust out of your self-imposed media prison there's a whole big world out there y'all and some serious stuff is going down civil war intolerance aids obliteration the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling earth's nations the spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days and it will not be your saving grace why not replace your dreams of gracing life stage the last serious effort for immigration reform, which happened 2006-2007, um, was stopped by a minority, these very extremist, nativist groups. These include FAIR, Numbers USA, the Center for Immigration Studies, all of whom come from the same network, founded by this guy called John Tanton. Basically, he's a eugenicist. I mean, he believes that um, this country should remain a white Anglo-Saxon country. I've come to the point of view that for European-American society and culture to persist requires a European-American majority and a clear one at that. People talk about the problem of integration. Well, immigration, this country has always dealt with that problem of integration. We've had all throughout our history, a, a series of waves of immigrants, there's no difference between um, the way people used to talk about the Irish or the Polish or the Italian and the way some people talk about the Mexicans and the Latinos today. It's exactly the same. All the fears raised in the immigration debate comes from xenophobia. A, a, a lot of it does, let's put it that way. You shouldn't be scared. My God, this country has shown us so many times that these immigrants become Americans within one generation. Why are you freaking out? The, uh, the, the, the funniest thing about these xenophobes is that so many of them profess to love America and to love American history. They're obviously the worst students of it. The demographics are changing. It's not a traditional America anymore. And now the president, who's waging a war on traditional America. The white establishment is now the minority. We must not fundamentally transform America as some would want. We must restore America and restore her honor. But I think when statements like that are made, it sends a sense of fear into the reader, into the audience, into the listener of like, oh, they're different from me. We're not the same, and I should be scared of that. I grew up and I lived in, a, in an all-white town. And I went to an all-white school. We didn't have gangs. We didn't have, uh, you know, violence uh, on the scale we have today. 57% of uh, our American population are uh, uh, non-white, and 40 
7% are, 43% are white. And uh, this is a big change. Integration was forced upon white America at the point of a bayonet. Enforcement's always the first thing that people propose when it comes to immigration reform, because it's the easiest thing to propose. Just get a whole bunch of soldiers, a whole bunch of guns, a whole bunch of fence, and a whole bunch of drones, and therefore the immigration problem gets solved. The focus of immigration policy in this country became enforcement. As the, as, as the Latino population grew in the United States, there was, there was already a reaction. So that reaction turned into a series of laws or anti-immigrant laws and, and pressure into the federal government to actually start deporting more and more people and enforcing immigration laws in a, stringent, in a more stringent way. It's almost like you're being sold a bill of goods. It's like, well, you know, we're going to have reform and we're going to have to, you know, keep the enforcement up and, you know, and the deportations will still go up and, you know, we're still going to separate families because, you know, we want that balanced immigration. And we need to step back for a second as a country and say, you know, why, why are we doing this? You know, why is there this emphasis on enforcement? The number of deportation cases hits a record high. ICE expects to keep increasing the number of expulsions. The number of people deported more than doubled. The easiest image for the American media to use when it comes to immigrants is right on the border. It is of streams of people coming in, snake either swimming through the Rio Grande or lining up or walking through miles in lines across the Sonoran Desert. And those images just make it seem like it really is a true invasion. It, it sensationalizes. That's what the media does. Media always sensationalizes. The media always simplifies the issues at hand. So when the American public sees all these people coming into the United States, then the easy response is, okay, let's stop it by putting a bunch of military men there. Good fences make for good neighbors. I believe in securing our borders. Our borders are not secure. Securing our borders. We have made inf historic investments in manpower, technology, and infrastructure to help secure our borders. I think the answer is you put up a fence. A fence? Electric wiring that stings people that they can't get through and they can't clip. Continue building the 18-foot high fence. Americans have always equated immigrants with criminality just because the vast majority of the immigrants who have come to this country historically have been poor, but this idea of Mexicans being this criminal species of people. Couple that then with stereotypes that people have about Mexicans, whether immigrant or not, the bandito, the spicy senorita, and you have a marriage of really the scary... Uh, it really has a scary outcome for a lot of Americans. Like, oh my God, a Mexican and a Mexican immigrant, they're born criminals. Uh, we should be scared of them. And now they're coming into our country, into areas they've never been to before. Obviously, they only come here for nefarious purposes, so we should really be scared of them and we should do anything possible to stop them from coming here. The logic is immigrants are criminals and immigrants are Latinos. So hence, Latinos are criminals. You listen to Fox News. You listen to AM radio and you hear like all these people just saying, should go to the back of the line, they're illegal, they're criminals, without ever once mentioning the human interest story. And what happens if one of these released illegals does something illegal? I mean, what if there's a crime committed as a result of this? Somebody comes across the border in the middle of the night. Why are they doing that? Really, three reasons. One, they're terrorists. Two, they're escaping the law. Or three, they're hungry. 
they can't make a living in their own dirtbag country. Right now, the drug smugglers from Mexico have bases in 1,000 cities in the United States. Why do we think that? Well, we know they're criminal. Uh, a lot of these uh, human traffickers, especially sex trafficking, are controlled and owned by liberal media interests. Americans will always insist that immigrants are here to exploit Americans, whether by welfare, but whether by stealing from you, because again, that is in their mind that the immigrant class is a criminal class and they're lazy. The government is promoting a gateway for new citizens to take advantage of government benefits. And they come to this country and Democrats instantly get them on welfare, instantly get them, get, get them having illegitimate children. The Department of Homeland Security basically serving as a menu of handouts and giveaways that they can jump on. We are importing a lot of people into this country who are not contributing. They know how to game our, uh, all our benefits. They're on food stamps, they go to the hospital, they get free education, they get free medical care. I know a lot of people from Mexico, they're just here for the money. They just want to earn the money. They don't even want to be here. I got this amazing question one time in my Ask a Mexican column. Somebody asked me, whatever happened to the lazy Mexican? Because I hear nowadays they're stealing our jobs. And what happens with uh, the American mentality and immigrants, it's a bifurcated position. They're either incredibly lazy or they're stealing everything we have and they're trying to leech off of us. Beatings and deaths at the hands of Border Patrol agents. An immigrant being beaten and tasered by Customs and Border Protection, Valeria Monique Tachikin was shot several times by a Border Patrol agent as he served an arrest warrant for someone else. People love to demonize immigrants. People love to dream about all the punishments that illegal immigrants should go through. Pick up your property, take your money, and go home. And when they do that, the problem is basically solved. We're not saying they have to be deported by ICE. Let them live in, in the United States as the illegals in the shadows until they decide to go home. This country was always about that dream, the American dream, to come here and find a better life and having your family here. What we have had in the last 20 years, this sort of enforcement-only strategy is not the path to continue to follow into the future because it's hurting immigrants and it's hurting the United States economic future. This is DeJavante calling from Notre Dame, Indiana. I just wanted everyone to really pay attention to this whole Donald Sterling thing with the Los Angeles Clippers. On some of the voicemail lines, you know, we've been talking about respectability politics and, you know, I mean, everyone hears the Bill Cosby's, the even Barack Obama saying we have to lift ourselves up in order to fight the oppression that comes from white supremacy and the patriarchy and all that. What Donald Sterling said was, and if anyone doesn't know, he basically said that to his girlfriend, not to bring those people, meaning black people, and specifically Magic Johnson, who is a multimillionaire, professional athlete, 
and owner of the part owner of the LA Dodgers even said not to bring him around the games and take pictures and be in public with him either. And that's just the most pure example of why respectability politics don't work. It's it's not anything that we're doing that's going to change the mind of the racist and white supremacy. It's the fact that no matter what you do as a black man or black woman or you know any other minorities, people of color, you're always going to be seen as the other, the, the ones that aren't desirable. And I mean, that's just a perfect example. Magic Johnson has absolutely you know pulled him up himself by bootstraps. He's He's made a name for himself. He's a very powerful man in Los Angeles now. And even he is not worthy of Donald Sterling, apparently. And that's just something that people can look at to say, to understand why respectability politics don't work. Because, and it's been mentioned before on your voicemails, that once you lift yourself up, then the bar is then raised to another level. It's never, there's never an end to when we're going to be good enough, basically. So, just want people to pay attention to that for those that are still wondering, like, like what all that stuff was about that's a great example of that it doesn't matter what we do it's the the racist white supremacy society is always going to be there hating us for who we are thanks jay love the show have a great night bye Hey, Jay, this is Yuhuru calling from Sweden. Thank you for playing Penny's Noble Call on the Arc of History episode. Really inspiring stuff. I want to respond to Professor Rambo and Daniel from Atlantis Comics on the topic of race. This week has really been instructive when it comes to race and class in America. Professor Rambo uh, contended that respectability politics was really important. I have to take a little issue with that. Uh, he took issue with white liberals voicing their criticisms of respectability politics. Rambo, like Bill Cosby and Dan Lemons, uh, claimed that if blacks would only adjust themselves to fit into a Eurocentric society, they would achieve an equal footing, and particularly in the job market. This does not hold water. Anecdotally, people of color have been overlooked in job searches simply for having ethnic-sounding names. This parenthetically occurs in Sweden with African and Arab people. Princeton University's research on race and job applicants detailed how college-educated black men fared worse than white applicants with felony convictions on their applications. Donald Sterling of the Los Angeles Clippers made it clear that it troubled him and his peers that his ex-girlfriend socialized with blacks at his NBA games. In this instance, the black was a multimillionaire businessman and Los Angeles Laker icon, Magic Johnson. These instances confirm what many, including our white allies, have stated repeatedly, that even if we conform to Eurocentric standards, the line will continue to be moved. I have dreadlocks. Should I cut them to make other people feel comfortable? If respectability politics does not lead to equality of opportunity, as those examples suggest, then what in reality motivates it. I contend it revolves around the fear of some middle and upper class blacks that they are thrown in the same bag with those other blacks who have not had the exposure to quote unquote respectable society, hence lack the mechanisms to pass along in social settings. That fear that I personally experienced can be overwhelming. It causes you to assess and reassess how you feel about yourself and black people in general. That pressure also leads to cartoonish views on race. For example, 
Professor Ramble's contention that black men are falling behind in the job market due to the use of slang during the interview process. This would be absurd. Many young men and women of all races in America have dialects and slangs, particularly to the region in which they were raised. They also have a general understanding that you must present yourself appropriately in specific situations, at church or at grandma's house, for example. It's become a bit of a joke in the black community that we are bilingual, speaking hood with friends and speaking white in job situations. The road really divides when black people begin to consider how other blacks have presented themselves uh, before we've gotten our chance to prove that we're the equals to people of other races. I doubt this is a concern for our white counterparts. Correct me if I'm wrong. For me, this is why it's critical, critical for our white allies to use their privilege to speak to white audiences and continue to push back on respectability politics because it's ridiculous and hypocritical on its face. It does not serve to correct the problems of inequality. It serves as the misdirecting dog whistles. Once we get past the barriers of waste, we can rally a broad support for all people who share the common goal of equality of opportunity. Thank you for what you do, Jay, and keep up the good work. Hey, dog. Hey, what's up, Jay? This is Professor Rambo, as always, from Georgia, man. I just uh, just want to tell you I appreciate you responding to my voicemail, man. But um, no, nah, I, I wasn't. That, that's not what I was, I guess, implying, man. I'm not saying the black guys walk around with a top hat and a tuxedo on. Racism will end, and every every black man will get a pat on the back by every pass of white guy. It's not what I'm saying at all. Dressing up in a tuxedo or getting a PhD or speaking with the Queen's English is not going to end racism. What I'm saying is, it's not, I'm not the voice of the black man, but to me, the word respectability politics is not respectability politics. To me, it's acting respectable. So, you know, by telling a young black man who's about to go to a job interview to maybe turn his hat the right way, pull up his pants and speak clearly, that's not politics. I'm saying, hey, man, kind of, you know, you might want to have some respect about yourself. You know what I'm saying? That, that's what I'm saying, man. So when it comes to respectability politics, I don't I don't really dabble in, say, respectability politics. I'm not going to run a campaign on family values and the importance of wearing a belt. What I mean by respectability politics is that's the label that's given by, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I identify as a liberal, but what I'm saying is it's kind of like, you know, mostly like the white liberal media establishment is just kind of looking down on these, what, you know, what, what they would call Uncle Tom black folks, black folks who was made in life and who now runs around telling uh, Nick Cannon he's bad because, uh, he, you know, he's a millionaire, he's still dressed like he's 12 or something. You know, like, I'm not, I'm not a politician, man. I'm just a, a black guy trying to make it in this white society. And all I'm saying is, I just do, I just think it's counterproductive to, you know, um, uh, I run a nonprofit down here in Georgia, man. And one of our things we stress is black manhood, acting like a man, behaving like a man, you know, doing things that a man should do for his family, for his community, for his state, for his school, for himself. And it just, it, I just think it's kind of productive if, you know, somebody comes in who, who doesn't really need that back and who doesn't need that help. Like, hey, man, it's just fine. Get tattoos all down your neck. Hey, man, it's just fine. Call me nigga. It's no problem. Hey, man, it's just fine. Play your music loud enough so people get here for three miles. Hey, man, it's all good. It's all good. Because those are going to be the kids that are getting shot on the street because they're appearing to be a thug. Those are the kids who aren't going to get a job. 
because nobody's gonna hire a little Tyrone with tattoos down his neck who can't even who can't speak proper English. Like they're not getting hired. And these are gonna be the same kids that are gonna go rob that white liberal who's speaking all that good stuff about you know uh, racism isn't gonna end because of you you dressing up. So like it's a cycle, man. But uh, I kind of went on a little rant there. But like I said, I'm always on Twitter, Professor Rambo. I'm always hollering at you, man. So uh, y'all take care. Can't wait to hear reply. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segment. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So this has definitely turned into an interesting conversation on respectability politics, although I think it might be more based on miscommunication rather than an actual disagreement, but we can still, you know, get into the details of it anyways. Uh, the first couple of callers we heard today sounded like they interpreted Professor Rambo's original comments from a, a show or two ago in the same way that I did. But now Professor Rambo has called back in and made some clarifications of his own. And now it sounds like there's nothing left for us to disagree about. It, you know, he, he was saying that, uh, you know, as I agree with, if all young black men wore top hats and so forth, then that would not make racism go away. And uh, then the reverse of that was he was saying that he just doesn't like hearing people say that, you know, it, it's OK for anyone to have a neck tattoo or to not speak properly because, oh, you shouldn't be adversely affected by that. You know, I, I certainly haven't said that. I don't think I've played anything on on the show that suggested that because I wouldn't have agreed with it if, if I had. Because I think that, you know, anyone, but especially people of color who, who don't uphold those sort of standards of respectability in, in white society will be adversely affected. So, you know, yes, I do think that a young black man who acts respectably in the eyes of a white supremacist society that they live in will see some benefits to that. But I think that the idea of respectability politics is, is about the issue of focus. And I, I think maybe to clarify, maybe to muddle the waters, we'll see. Um, I see a parallel between this and, and the rape culture discussion. You know, yes, there are steps that women can take to statistically reduce their chances of being sexually assaulted. Of course, not that that changes the 100% culpability of any would-be attacker, but there are things that women can do, but that is not where the focus of the conversation should be. You know, in our society currently, we do focus way too much on telling women how to not get raped and not nearly enough on telling men to not rape. And again, in society, we focus way too much on telling people of color to be respectable and not nearly enough time telling white people to not be racist. So, you know, if you're Bill Cosby or Don Lemon or Bill O'Reilly and you actually want to make the lives of young black men better and you choose to use your time to focus on telling them to be more respectable, then it seems to me like you're missing 95% of the point. You know, it's like people who are furious about welfare fraud, which costs the government millions, right? But then they don't care at all about Wall Street fraud that costs us trillions. They're just missing the big picture. You know, welfare fraud isn't bankrupting the country, even if it's costing us a little. And women never leaving their drinks unattended isn't going to solve the problem of sexual assault, even if it is a marginally helpful thing for them to do. 
and people of color pursuing ever-changing definitions of respectability is not the path to equality, even if appearing respectable to white people does help you, you know, get a job or get along in life. It's not that there's no truth in these things. It's like I said, it's more of an issue of where the focus belongs and how these misdirections are meant to distract from solving the core issues of the problem with the status quo in our society that the people in power, white men, have a vested interest in maintaining. And interesting enough, uh, just a couple days ago, I got an email from a listener who was actually responding to the issue of uh, private prisons, and then it, it fit perfectly also with charter schools, and then also maybe with uh, you know commentators who speak about sort of maintaining the status quo while pretending like they're trying to solve a problem, uh, like I just described. And this listener wrote in uh, to to give me this quote, which I loved: "If you're not part of the solution, there's good money to be made prolonging the problem." So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can see past all the sad stories And wonder why we're missing Stories and forget who it is we're from.